This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Ollie Judge. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. As 2021 comes to a close, on this week's episode, we're looking into the future of computing in 2022 and beyond. We're going to be discussing three areas of technology that are likely to be game changers in the years to come. We'll be covering AI and machine learning, blockchain and the metaverse, and finally, quantum computing. Joining me today from Capgemini Invent are three experts in their respective fields. Firstly... Hi, I'm Gary Bumayo. I'm Chief Technology and Innovation Officer for Capgemini Invent. My job over here is to work with emerging technology, figure out new products and solutions for our clients and potential new clients. And... Hello, I'm Moaz Dreyer, Chief Scientist at Capgemini Invent. And my role is investments and collaboration with partners in academia and also an industry focused on innovation, covering AI, but also other topics. And... Hi, my name is Elia van Velzen. I'm CTAO and head of the Capgemini Quantum Lab. Uh, and my role is to both prepare ourselves and start learning about quantum technologies, as well as uh, start experimenting with our clients. This is a very special episode of Future Sight because we're actually going to be talking about the future, which is something that we don't get to do all that often. And what we're going to be talking today about is the future of computing. And between us, we've got people that can represent the software side of things, the hardware side of things, and the interconnectivity between all of that. But what I do want to start off with is a bit of an open question, and, and that's what the state of computing is right now. There has been talks about the end of Moore's law, basically that classical compute systems won't develop any further for quite some time already. I think I heard this first 20 years ago, and it's still going on. It will probably go on for a little while longer, like the current uh, hardware uh, innovation is still progressing. There's still all kinds of tricks they can do with the lithography to make it even smaller. Uh, but at some point, it is going to stop. And I think at some point there will be challenges and kind of things that we want to do that even if we improve our systems by 10, 20 or 50%, it won't be enough. So we really have to start thinking about other types of hardware architectures to think about how we can address some of the big challenges of the future. Kerry, you've been quite opinionated about the, this stuff and the limitations of how certain industries can use their computers. Let's talk more about computation power of how far we can really push the current systems that we've got uh, are, are the are the systems that we've got at the moment fit for purpose for what we're trying to do or are we trying to design new ways of doing things without a problem to actually solve no i think that it's not that big it's a cat and mouse kind of a game to a certain extent in which you have an increasing amount of um, need for computation as we move forward and some of the solutions are mostly hardware-based, like what Julian was talking about. But then there's other solutions in terms of just the software. And what we're realizing today is that when you start thinking about how the software needs to be looked at, then everything comes into play in terms of where is the, the compute actually happening at, at a chip level. So it turns out that the distance that the, the data needs to travel from where it's stored to where it's computed has a big impact on the amount of energy that is consumed in terms of being able to do the computation. And so today we're seeing a lot of research that's happening in terms of doing on-storage compute. So you need to be able to reduce that distance of where you store the data. Can you actually do the computation directly over there? More importantly, when you're doing a lot of computation, this comes to Moyes' field of work, which is 
all about AI. And over there, when you start looking at a lot of these extremely large neural nets are heavily uh, computational necessary as well. And what we're seeing today is new techniques which come inside over there in terms of being able to prune these models a bit better, use new kinds of technical approaches and being able to figure out how do we get the same kind of predictability, the same kind of quality result without being so intensive. And then there's more information in terms of just being able to be using the data in a lot smarter kind of a way. So there's many different avenues which can be explored when it comes to that. But the key thing which I'm looking at today is also the fact that we are now seeing more and more decentralized computing. So do we need to do the computation the way that we do today, analytic structures, or is there places in which we can actually have decentralized storage, which is an area where we're seeing a lot of work coming out in blockchain space, decentralized computation, there's even decentralized VPN that's coming out right now. So I don't think there's kind of, here's the solution that you require for this kind of an application. That is something which will become much more defined as we move forward. But at the same time, what we do have is more and more optionality in terms of being able to look and see how do we actually kind of figure out smart ways to do this? Because it's not just a hardware or a software problem. It's everything. So I'm going to dig into that software angle a little bit. And ask my to tell us a little bit about what software 2.0 is and where we need to move to to enable some of this more decentralized structure. And we're not just talking about blockchains. We're also talking about like machine learning on your device that you carry with you every day. Can you Can you give us a bit of background on where we're moving to at the moment and some of the sort of like big trends that are coming. Sure. So the trends in terms of hardware, in terms of data collection, architecture is really progressing. But to bring all these together, you have to have standardized ways of writing software and sharing software that people could use that is traceable and easy to exploit. And previously, when you wanted to do software and software 1.0 era, people had to sit down, carefully think about what to write down, ensure that this is interoperable with the rest of what's happening in the ecosystem, and then ensure that this works. And the software 2.0, it's actually the machines that write the the algorithm, the machines that design the algorithm. And uh, and this is easy as a definition, but this means that you have to have all the components that come together nicely. And I think this is where we are now in this space where You have data that it's reliable, that it's well documented. You have uh, streamlined processes of building those algorithms, and you have the oversight that ensures that the algorithm is performing as anticipated, that it's not using too much energy, that it's respectful of ethical considerations, etc. And I think within an organization, uh, internally, this is something that could be done successfully if you want to do this as global scale and make the most of data collected at all parts of the the world and shared between organization and insights also shared between them. I think we are at the very beginning of that journey and, and hopefully like the next three to five years will enable us to crack some of the exciting problems that we'll hopefully we'll be discussing later in this episode. I think one way to look at it is if you are someone who's got increasing amounts of computational burden that's affecting, you know, the way that you work and what you do, then in that case, there's a what, where, and how of computation. So you need to first ask yourself, well, where are you computing? Because the place where you're getting your energy source from is very important um, because this is still a physical infrastructure. And then you have to think about how to compute. So that, of course, is in, in terms of the computing hardware and what kind of algorithms and what kind of like processing systems you're, you're putting in place. 
And then finally, it's what are you computing? What to compute? And that's the computational demands. And that's where you can use a lot of these new kind of like solutions which are coming out there. The reason that you want to do it from this where, how, and what perspective is because it affects the bottom line. It affects a lot of the power usage. It affects a lot of the the carbon emissions that get created from um, information systems. And something which I think Moiz and I have been looking at more and more importantly is also all these different systems, how they're connected together. Because there is a whole operations and processes pipeline that gets, gets created. And there's efficiencies that you can get inside over there as well. There is actually a, a huge bottleneck when it comes to producing uh, useful insights from the data that's out there. And I think we will need armies of developers to be able to do this. And I think the by moving that by removing the human aspect bottleneck and by creating automated generation of code where it's supposed to be consumed and shared between different organizations in a reliable way, that this is really fosters a lot of innovation. And uh, I'm just going to give an example. For example, if you look at what happened during COVID, there's been a lot of data, a lot of papers, a lot of insights, but nothing that can bring all this together from where they produced to come up with a solution that enable us to raise to the challenge. And, and this is, we have the components, we just don't know how to bring them together. Off, off the back of this, we, we've got a lot of potential and we've got a lot of, let's say, new toys to play with. But as we've spoken about on the show before, the key to any good machine learning initiative is clarity of data or, or essentially having your house in order before you can do all of this stuff. Are we, are we now at the point where people have got their data in shape as much as they should? Or are we still somewhat limited by how people have, number one, taken their data in, but also how, that, how they're able to expose that to newer systems? I think there is also the mundane data quality. I want to get my data nice and, and reliable, et cetera. I think there's a, there are a lot of efforts and a lot of technology that it's going into that. I think we are going to solve that problem. And then I need data that have the, that can extract insights from. And for the time being, the success is around this called supervised learning. So good labels that you could use to learn how to label data that you have not seen in the past. And this is, I think, for the time being, a bad avenue. I think it was great to show potential, but it's limited, again, by human factor, how to label things, how reliable. We're not great, actually, individuals at labeling things. There's a lot of uh, subjectivity often. And uh, so the area is moving into what's called more and more self-supervised learning now, where give the machine data, and it fig- which would figure out for, it- for itself what's interesting, what's relevant, what are the relationships and then learns from that. This is very early days. There are a lot of research papers in that space, but groundbreaking tools that could be deployed in an enterprise uh, environment. But I think this is something that's going to completely change the nature of how we use AI. Okay, and, and off the back of that, we've, so for the last few years, people mainly understand AI as being able to surface a, a picture of a cat from their, their photo albums or meta-tagging things up so that you can organize the data and have a little bit of prediction in there. And that this is open to the group, but probably primarily mowers. What, where do you think people are going to be seeing the newer developments in AI in, in maybe the next year or next couple of years that goes beyond just that? I think there's been an application domain that's been looming for a number of years, but I think this year it's, uh, there's been a major breakthrough, which is biology. I think in biology, we make a, a, made a major step change with AlphaFold, but it's not just AlphaFold. There are many exciting developments where we use an AI to understand a scientific area where we don't have, and I, 
hope that the biologist is going to, I'm not going to dislike what I'm going to say, but a principled way of explaining things. Like we don't have the maths like we have in physics, etc. It's still an area that relies a lot on experimentation, the experimental design, the data, people's intuition. And now that AI is getting more and more involved in that space, we are going to uncover patterns and we're going to create consistencies in the way we understand biology, diseases, drug discovery that has never been done before. And I feel like this is really a, a great area, computational biology. And I think we, we had an episode earlier uh, in the month about synthetic biology, which is how to create new living, not just understand what's out there, but how to beat evolution uh, at some sense. And I think there's a lot of hope that AI could crack that. Still the beginning, a lot of challenges ahead, but I feel like this is, we're going to move away from cats to get in the drug that's going to be personalized to you, to your disease, and that will improve your life quality. So what's quite interesting there is you've got something as complex as biology that has infinite variables, most of which we still don't understand either. All of this is going to require an awful lot of computation power. So I want to think about the, the scalability of these, these models and and which is where I'm, I'm going to tick over to quantum computing in a minute because I want to talk about the limitations of the current infrastructure that we have. In the last year, we've experienced anything from chip shortages for GPUs that people might not be able to get hold of. We also know that using that kind of computer, it's resource heavy. It, it's not well power managed. So what are the limitations here in, in terms of hardware to actually power all of this stuff? And and I think Julian touched on a little bit earlier with Moore's law is now slowing down. So what does the future of this look like? Are we actually being limited by the computers that we're running on? Yeah. So when it comes to hardware, yeah, transistors are not really getting more and more efficient, especially current ones uh, or contemporary ones. But what is also important to understand that when you're using hardware, the energy that's consumed in the, and that affects the computation, it's actually determined by the data movement. So as a result of this, as we've realized this, some of the solutions that we're coming up with, which are not quantum related, I'll let Julian talk about those, is like, how do we increase the hardware efficiency? So one method which people are looking at today is, how do you do data reuse in, in deep neural networks via low-cost memories? And this is like the data that's accessed once from the memory. It can be reused multiple times for different operations. This leads to kind of stuff which we call like feature map reuse or filter reuse. And what they're essentially doing is making low-cost memories. You're just making sure that if you're accessing the information from the memory part of the hardware, that this new kind of architecture affects the data flow and, the, and how you're going to reuse it. MIT actually did some work on this. They actually created a new kind of a chip which is based on what they call the iris architecture. And they were able to exploit enough reuse of the data to reduce the amount of memory access by around 100. Some of their other tests showed that they could reduce the amount of off-chip memory access, which is more expensive, by close to 1,000x. So that's just in terms of the hardware. We're also seeing new advances in what we call in-memory computing, which is where you're moving the computation into the memory itself. So that's another hack which they're trying to do. And I think there's some work that's coming out in computing with light, but that kind of sounds like it's Julian's territory, so I'll let him know. So there are all kinds of advancements in, in, in many different types in hardware. I think, if, for example, if we take the example that Moes provided about personalized drugs, there is things like AlphaFold that is able to predict a protein folding with, with deep learning approaches. It will have its, its 
purpose. Then there are all kinds of, of in-memory or maybe even neuromorphic type of computer systems that will have its own purpose. And I think what's really important here is that the, there will be many of these different compute systems, both in terms of hardware and software, living together in a heterogenic compute landscape. And uh, quantum computing will be one part of that, that landscape. There are definitely some things that, you know, even if we improve, you know, those systems by, by a lot more, calculating the full electronic interaction for some of the molecules, it won't work even if you have compute systems that have the power, have a thousand times more power than those of today, and it run for thousands of years. So it's really completely impossible with some of the current hardware. And there are quantum computers, of course, can be one of those, one of those things that open up new possibilities. What I really liked was what uh, Gary mentioned before, is that we really have to think about what we want to compute, where we want to compute, and, and how we want to compute. So it will really be a question of what kind of a solver or hardware can I use for this? And how do, do I let this work with some of the other solvers that I use? How do I decompose my problem into a machine learning parts and then sending one part to a quantum computer for the for the most toughest? And this won't be easy, right? Because it's two, two pieces of a Lego uh, block that don't fit very well together. So you have to think about like how where do I put my data to make sure that these will work together. For some of these, uh, these uh, calculations, you need the quantum data, the quantum computer, and, and some of the classical data to be extremely close, like in the order of nanoseconds, uh, in order to, to work efficiently. And some other data can be further apart from each other and still, uh, still work. So it's, it will be really a question of what do I use, where do I use it, uh, and how do I uh, make this work together. And, and the success actually of obviously, uh, especially in the AI space, but when any kind of high data uh, need and high computation needs application is bringing the two the, together, that there is the software and the hardware that work in sync to solve the problems. However, the industries and their the production cycles are different. So hardware can, is not produced until there is great software that shows potential that hardware will work. And then software solutions don't get widely exploited because they cannot benefit from hardware acceleration. And I think there are more and more players, especially in the tech world, that are realizing that and investing internally and bringing hardware that will be beneficial to software that it's down the line, be it that the TPUs and the IPUs and all kind of the, the software yeah, and these hardware we, we talk about. But also I think there is, as, as Carrie and, and Julian mentioned, there is all the aspect of photonics and using other types of approaches that have a nice application when it comes to AI, because not only they do compute, but also they do compression. That means that they extract the best of the data, the essence of it, that would reduce the compute down the line. And so you kind of, you have a double benefit from having very powerful compute, but this is also little data. And so from an energy perspective, this is actually super powerful. And we see in, in the photonic space, a lot of applications using SketchShake, and we, we partnered with a company called Lighton, that does this and is actually bringing this to market. There's a lot of exciting things down the line in this. Yeah, it's always the case, right, that when you've got something in abundance, you tend to overuse it or not have enough respect for it. And because Moore's Law was working so well and was so consistent, people just got complacent with the way that they were using a lot of their computational resources. And so we just went for these massive brute force methods. So we were mentioning about these large language models out there like GPT-3 or, or these BERT models which are out there. And it turns out if you actually look at them, they always report and they have these leaderboards where they always talk about like how performant it is. And there's no doubt you, you, you cannot argue with the, the actual capabilities of these things. But then you realize that you've done it in a very, um, in a very Bruce Ford kind of a method. You've just like dumped a lot of data and you find let it compute and come up with these results. 
And now that we're hitting certain kinds of limits and we're realizing this kind of um, abundance that we thought we were immersed in isn't really a reality, we need to be a lot smarter. So it, just moving from the hardware side to the software side for a second, one of the things we've realized recently is that a lot of these large models are often over-parameterized, right? They, they've got too many parameters and you don't really need that much. So one thing that they're starting to see is something which is known as knowledge distillation, which essentially entails making the model smaller by taking a large model that works very well, and then you distill it into a smaller model, which are then trained to imitate the larger model's predictions. And we're like, what are the key activations within these uh, models that actually can help you come up with a similar kind of result? This has also led to an increasing amount of GAN. So that's gen adversarial networks in which basically two neural nets fight each other, you could say. And over there as well, you're finding like smarter ways to do. So they, they're trying to use a lot of uh, synthetic data over there in order to train the data set and augment the, the, the training data set which you have, like the data that you've got inside over there. It's also leading to what we mentioned a little bit before, which is pruning. And pruning is essentially the process of the approach of taking a, a pre-trained model and removing or pruning unnecessary model parameters. So you can prune different parts of the model or you can propose different kinds of metrics for what makes, what are the small weights which are inside these models, which don't really have a big impact Maybe we can get rid of them and make this uh, a little bit more light. And yeah, this happens not just in the level of the model, but also at the level of the net. And that's something which really helps in being able to reduce the amount of energy consumption, the amount of computation that is required to get the similar end. One other example that I want to uh, give to what, what Gary mentioned, that we kind of got spoiled by the abundance of compute power before, right? Like every year transistors doubled, so we didn't really have to be smart in the way we use our software. It's something that we see now with the developments of quantum algorithms as well, because in this process of trying to figure out new quantum algorithms, while we're being extremely limited with the quantum hardware that's available, we can only do these, these toys mod, toy models. In the process, we figure out a lot of classical algorithms that are actually much better than we ever thought. So it's really the, the, the scarcity of the quantum hardware that drives us to find new classical algorithms that are much better than we ever thought and yeah, already showing to have a lot of value. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to pause there slightly. We've crossed over into the realm of quantum computing, so I think it would be good to get I, just a brief explainer from Julian on what quantum computing is, what it means, and, and also what it's potentially going to be good at. So, so quantum computers are a fundamentally different type of computers, whereas classical computers that they build on these transistors and they have a specific way of computing, quantum computers are used at the phenomena of quantum physics to build a new type of computer. And they are extremely fast for very specific type of applications. So one way to think about them is as if they are like super specialized GPUs that are good in certain things. So for example, think about like simulating fluid dynamics, computations that last on classical computers thousands of years if you want to you know, simulate this in a large extent. And that could potentially be speed up by millions of times to seconds. Or think about uh, large computational problems, electronic structure, uh, and simulating how, how drugs work or, or figure out new materials. So all kinds of things that are really computationally challenging and that are not possible in classical systems that could potentially be speed up with, uh, with quantum. Cool. And last time I checked in on quantum computing, it was like the original computers that, that they were the size of rooms and stuff like that. Are we, is that still the status of quantum computing or, or is it, are we beginning to get to a point where 
it, it's feasible for people to think about it as part of their sort of like ongoing industry strategy. So it's very early, right? These machines are in complete development. I think in the past uh, 10 years, we have proven that it could work. Uh, and it has been proven that uh, you have very small computers that are, can run some algorithms. But it, it's now really in a, a time where we try to scale these things up to uh, be able to do serious problems. Uh, so at this point, nothing that's been done with these machines is for any practical advantage. But nonetheless, you can already build your algorithms, test them on actual hardware, figuring out what use cases work and what doesn't work, and make sure that you're ready. Uh, because the development's going pretty quick. It, it might still take five years or 10 years, or no one really knows. But if the potential is that big, if you could really speed up some things thousands or millions of times, it's probably worth starting to. Sure. So uh, with, with this completely different paradigm and... I, I know that my technical animator screams at me every time I ask for water in something that I do because of all of the fluid dynamics and how that works. So we're going to be talking about blockchains a little bit later and, and the metaverse. But with the sort of introduction of quantum computing and the way that it can tear through modern computing patterns at a much, uh, potentially a much faster rate, could that potentially be the undoing of modern cryptography? Could it fell an entire industry just based on its speed? Yeah. So one of the things quantum computers are particularly good at is to, to find patterns in large sequences of numbers. And this is exactly what cryptography is based. So many of our of current cryptography will be broken with quantum computers whenever they're matured. So it's definitely not today and not in the next five years either. But after that, it becomes pretty tricky. You know? No one knows when it will happen and you better be prepared. So the thing is that even though it may still take 10 years before quantum computers are big enough to run these type of algorithms to break cryptography, it means that by then, you have to be completely migrated to newer type of encryption. You have to completely readjust your whole your whole network, all your cryptographic assets. And this is extremely complex and time-consuming. If you want to give yourself some time to, to learn and to make mistakes and to migrate, it's a good idea to start today. And, and, and this is actually a really important point because Julian kind of educated me a lot about quantum uh, cryptography and QKD and PQC systems and everything else. And because there's so much going on over there, I think one of the issues why a lot of our clients or even a lot of people who are looking at quantum computing, they look at it as a curiosity and they're like, wow, this sounds like really interesting, but doesn't really affect what I'm doing today. Or I don't see how I can actually move from what I'm doing today to what's going on over there. And I think a good mental model that people need to have is that every technology is always like a phase of transition, right? So it's not like you have one system that you work on today and tomorrow it's, you're going to move to a completely different system. You do so in like certain kind of progressive ways and you need to have some kind of reason to start using with a specific quantum technology. It's not just in terms of computation. So one of the things that when we started thinking about the QLab, which Julian runs right now, it wasn't just to focus on quantum computation. It was also like, let's look at quantum sensors. Let's look at quantum communication systems. And the reason for, for doing that is not just because we have an extremely wide um, client base who have different kind of needs. It's also because of the fact that there's a lot of these technologies which are already at the product stage, meaning that every technology goes from being completely new, it's, it's got genesis phase, and then it becomes used for very specific things, and then it becomes used for different things, and that's when it becomes like a product offering, till the point it comes, becomes like a total commodity, and everyone kind of uses it. 
And right now, we've already got certain kinds of quantum technologies which are in the product phase. So a good example for this is like quantum sensors. And at CAP, one of, one of the labs that we have at Cambridge Consultants, they've done work with quantum magnometers. And quantum magnometers are useful for detecting like very small variations or levels of magnetism with a very high spatial accuracy. And this can be used in places like navigation, mine exploration, or if you need to use it in magnet cardiac or orientation of drones and autonomous vehicles or in places where G- GPS doesn't work, right up to like sonar and detection of moving metal objects in vehicles and stuff like that. There's also a lot of application for it in cell imaging and in pharma. And so if you're thinking, how do I start this quantum journey? How do I start moving to this new realm of computation and all these technologies that's been there? You select something specific, which already has a physical, tangible thing that you can use right now. And then once you get into that and you see the quantum advantage, no pun intended, <laughs> then it helps help you open up and see that, okay, fine, now I can see what's the additional system that I can transfer into and that way, when five years down the line, when we come to the, this impasse at which, oh my God, all the, all the encryption systems are just going to get totally uh, pulverized right now, you're already in a state of mind and it's not going to be like a big emotional shock. Yeah. Maybe one thing to add to that is that it, it's not a coincidence that there is so much going on in quantum technology world, right? There's, there has been 50 years of developments, engineering developments and scientific development in all kinds of building blocks that are used for sensors and for computers. Things like single photon detectors, lasers, and, and all kinds of cryogenetic tools and, and many things more. Uh, and because that has been up to a maturity level that it's so extremely good, it's the reason why we can build quantum computers and it's exploding from from, from research facilities into uh, that many of our clients are starting to explore as similarly for, for sensors. And they are a little bit easier to produce, so that's why we think it's as more a commercial value in the next couple of years. Yeah, but there's this whole building block that, that made this happen. I think there is also a lot of progress that happened on the algorithmic side. Like we lacked algorithms before. We had some toy problems or uh, interesting problems but that, that we have. We had algorithms for sure, the short algorithm, the Grover algorithm. But now there is like tens of algorithms available there that look at linear algebra, that look at differential equations. And now kind of we are Obviously, not at the level of the classical type of algorithms, but we are cracking multiple problems. And people need to be aware that writing a quantum algorithm before even deploying it on a quantum computer is an art in itself. It's like the concepts are different. The way you think about gates is different. The way you write algorithms, there is copying data, for example, is challenging because there are limitations and copying data actually cannot. There is the no cloning kind of principle that stops you from doing certain things. So really the, the design itself changes. And I think interesting, and hopefully there'll be tons of quantum algorithms when there are quantum computers. But it's also, as Julian was saying, Julian was saying, this is a great way of building new algorithms in the classical world, because we, we have new tools now to think about problems, new approaches. And I think there's a lot of potential there as well. And there's that side-by-side existence, which is already happening right now. You hear about quantum machine learning, which is a, a term that's been thrown around for the past couple of years. And What's interesting about it is it's actually more of like an interplay as in which where does your classical computing actually stop and where does the quantum computing like take over after that? Do you need to use all the computation that you need to do? Does it have to be on a quantum computer or can you kind of offload it in a certain kind of way? Actually, so we did participate in the BMW quantum challenge, but to reply to to message or add to you both is that quantum computers will definitely not take over classical systems, right? It will be a specialized type of compute system that 
similarly, like a GPU does does certain type of things. I think in let's say for example uh, weather prediction, it's been mentioned as a, as a use case for for quantum uh, computing, but at its current stage, it, it's it's way of a complex problem. It's, it involves thousands of things from measuring data to understanding fluid dynamics to predicting larger flow. And I think this there will be at first there will be a quantum algorithm that does you know some very specific things. For example, determining how some droplets of water interact with other materials to understand how clouds behave. And there will still be a lot of AI that, that predicts. Uh, other parts of, of weather and in the future they will continue to evolve where quantum technology will have more of a larger role and a more advantage and but it will always be a heterogenic landscape where there will be decomposition of this problem into many different compute architectures. I, I think what has been interesting through our conversation so far is, is trying to figure out the interoperability between all of this stuff like how do we send things off to a quantum computer for that to work on it how are we Choosing the right processes to go to the right bits of hardware and software as we move through everything. We've recently talked about metaverses on on a different episode, but in the sense of entertainment and connectivity and all that kind of stuff. But I'd actually quite like to think about the metaverse on this episode as more of a new internet, a, a, a new way of all of our systems communicating with each other that is a, maybe a bit more modern than the current transfer protocols that we have at the moment. And also, how do we facilitate the right highways between all of these new things that are coming through, especially when some of them may not have a centralized place that they're working through? We've talked a little bit about decentralization and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to ask a question to Kerry first, which is going to be, are blockchains the right application for all of this stuff to be built on? Or is it just the rudimentary thing that comes before the next thing? No, you can't boil it down to just one specific tech, all right? That's cheating, and you can't do it with my favorite tech as well. So, by <laughs> the way, good. this is like a big conversation that uh, Moez and I have been instigating with a lot of our people who work in engineering, um, because the real conversation over here is actually about ML ops. And Moez came up to me some time back, and he was just like, hey, man, no one's cracked this. It's so strange that everyone's going... To completely crazy and goo goo gaga with IoT and new kinds of devices and on-device intelligence and we can do this and we can do that. And he's like, all this information's coming in over here. We've already got like computational challenges that we need to take into consideration. And a big part about it is if you have these kind of value chains of data flowing in and out and being computed upon, then it creates bottlenecks. So how do you address these issues and this is like the reason that we actually reached out to Tim Scarf. So Tim Scarf runs a podcast called Machine Learning Street Talk. And on Machine Learning Street Talk, he gets really premium people to come down over there and have these amazing interviews with them. And so we reached out to him and we were like, what do you think? Because you talk to all the experts. We'd rather speak to you rather than speak to 10 different experts. And he told us essentially the same thing. He's no one's been able to crack this. So I think if we're going to be talking about this, we first need to think about it from conventional processes. Like how does this actually work over here? Blockchain has got definitely a role to play in all of this because the world between off-chain and blockchain is like getting more and more porous, right? So you've got a lot of information which is not on a blockchain now being transmitted to it. But never forget that a blockchain is made for a very specific reason. It's a value transfer protocol. And what we're talking about over here is communication protocols intermingling with the value chain protocol. A value chain protocol has got a very specific purpose. It, it's supposed to be able to do 
the transferability of, of economic value in a very decentralized way and therefore make it cheaper. But it's in a very specific context. And what we're talking about over here is computation in general, which is a big, much more bigger umbrella term. And that's why I would now hand over to Moez because he's the guy that I go to when I need to talk about communication. I think Kerry is right. There's not the technology that it's going to solve this. But I think the ideas behind the blockchain of being able to trace actions and be able to be confident on who did what and how, and this is approved in a decentralized way, will be part of the solution. To go back to what I was saying earlier about software 2.0, this is an ecosystem of people developing code, well, actually machines developing code on data collected somehow in the metaverse or in the real world or through sensors or whatever. And then this is transformed into insights, into areas where most people have no clue how to go from the data to the insights. So they have to trust what's going on and that people have to create a certain interoperability between all these to be able to stitch all these solutions together to enable you to solve a problem. I gave the COVID problem earlier. They require people who do statistics. You require biochemists. You require companies that do drug discovery. You have to trust the clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera. And in an era of mistrust and distrust of science and innovation, I think if you have these amazing tools that are put out there and there is no oversight and there is no way of checking why the machine is recommending this, why this drug is the right drug, how it's been discovered, who interfered with the data collection, with the algorithm design, et cetera, then clearly we're going to have even less trust in, in, in this innovation because now it's not going to be MIT and Harvard and Cambridge de deploying these solutions or big companies. It's going to be everybody. You and I can sit down and develop something, put it on the market, stitch it to existing solution, and it's a new product. And, and I think we call it MLOps. You can call it data ops. It's the XOps world of being confident that how things have been designed, how things are working, what are the limitations of those things, who fixed them and how they got fixed. And I think this is a, I think a way of thinking about products that, again, could work in a company, in a small company, uh, on a software. But if you're starting to have these everything as a service type approaches uh, to selling products, then we need something like blockchain for value exchange, about inside exchange and code exchange and data exchange. And this, is, I think, is going to be for the next 10 years, if we want to crack what AI brings to the table and what new hardware advances enable us to do, we need to get this, this confidence in what we're building from all dimensions. Because there's so much complexity that gets involved in it. So let, let's just use, you use the word metaverse, which everyone seems to throw around over here. But this really highlights the differences in, in, in the protocols, you could say. Okay, we know that more and more of this metaverse stuff is going to be Web3-based movement is already happening. The new cultural zeitgeist is being written as we speak. But think about the, the actual user. You always have to start with the user. So let's say they are using either a traditional uh, medium, which could be a computer or it could be a, a smartphone because it's got a lot of AR functionality over there. Or they're using like an AR or VR headset. So they put that on, they, they get into some kind of metaverse on, on a platform. And they start walking around, they're doing different things, they're communicating with their tribes that they meet over there, talking to creators, they're looking at their artifacts, or whatever they're producing over there. And at some point during this phase, they say, oh, I want to make an economic decision. I want to buy this NFT because I can now get a physical representation of it and wear it in the real world. And I can also get a virtual representation of it, which I can, you know, dress up my avatar with it. 
up to this point, blockchain is not really involved. Up to this point, it's just like traditional platforms. Like, with, okay, fine, new gadgetry that's involved in it. It's only at the point when they make that economic decision and make the decision to connect their wallet and make a payment that we have the conversation that moves to the blockchain. And what we've been talking about over here is there are complexities and efficiencies which need to be addressed in the communication protocols by itself, especially because we're getting more and more novelty that's getting created, more and more new novel experiences and a customer mindset that is spending between six to eight hours for most millennials every every day. They're spending it online today. So that by itself has got its own computational kind of challenges which needs to be solved. And of course, if you move into the blockchain, then over there again, there are a, a lot of computational um, problems. It's the reason why we had generation one blockchains, generation two, and now we're in the era of generation three blockchains. And what are they all doing? They're all fighting because of efficiency, whether it's in terms of transaction throughput, whether it's in terms of energy consumption. That's what they, they're going about. They're trying to make sure that they can have the most efficient blockchain, which can not just match whatever Visa's transaction throughput is, but go orders of magnitude beyond that because they know that this is where the demand is coming. So you can't have a one-size-fits-all kind of solution, a very nice, simplistic way to go about it because essentially you're dealing with massive amounts of complexity. And so your approach needs to have a way to respect that complexity, to understand it, and have a lot of granular solutions which are linked up together and make sense that they can interoperable, they flow into each other. And hence the reason that we started talking about ML ops or whatever ops, X ops, as you want, as Moe said, because if you don't understand the bottlenecks, you're not going to get the kind of efficiency uh, requirements that you're looking for. Maybe, maybe one thing to add uh, here. I think one important thing is that there's this, this growing demand for transparency in the way we compute things and we'll compute what. And the reason for it is that I think one thing is that everything be becomes computable in this metaverse picture, right? Where the, the boundary between real world and, and digital world is fading. And second, because it's becoming very difficult to see who's doing what and what type of compute systems are. And one thing that I would like to add in there is that there, there is also an increasing uh, inequality in compute capabilities. We, we see that with the uh, with the chip shortage now, with the growing international tensions, and we see that also with quantum technologies, where US has recently put very strict export control to China for quantum technologies, and there is a lot of talk in Europe as well about the uh, the Bosnia agreements that the dual use protection for these type of technologies and travel export restrictions. So it becomes even more important to to have more transparency in the way we compute things and to really make sure that that we'll be able to distribute the compute capabilities equally and fairly. I think that's an important note to take forward and, and also somewhere where I wanted to go around metaverses and, and all this kind of stuff. The argument against metaverse right now is that we're inventing all of this technology for somewhere that people don't actually want to be quite yet because there's no motivation for them to be there. We're not at Ready Player One. We've just got Facebook or Meta potting literally your desk in a 3D environment. That's not super exciting. So have we got a bit of a chicken and uh, a ch chicken before the egg problem right now that we're expecting people to show up and use all of these new value transfer mechanisms without necessarily understanding what the people are going to be doing in these environments. And then uh, as an add-on to that, what's going to be better in these environments? If we can use all of these new technologies, where are people going to see things be not just more efficient, but 
as we've seen leaps with smartphones and all that kind of stuff, what, what actually brings the leap forward rather than just replicating how I use a credit card, but I'm now in a different environment. Yeah, I'll take a first stab at this. And uh, I'm a big fan of Gresham's Law, which in economic economic theory is just the bad money chases out good money, right? So you might have different currencies, but the one that everyone wants to use for whatever reason, that's what they kind of gravitate towards. And this is something in which like technology has got this feature that once it's out there, the cat's out of the bag. So I'm going to go back inside again over there. So this metaverse conversation has started. It's been going on for a while, by the way. It's come into public um, limelight just because of the fact that Facebook has done its rebranding and made it a verb that everyone's throwing around over here. But it's ultimately up to the, the person to make that choice. It's the user's need for it. And even before the metaverse became such a normalized term, there were people already doing it. You know, if you if you're working in blockchain or if you're looking at what's going on in crypto, the NFTs came out in 2017, CryptoKitties, and after that, it's like had its evolutionary path to the point today that people are using it for different things. They first started by making board apes and profile pics with it, and today what you've got is people are using these NFTs to go ahead and actually make completely virtual fashion houses. So these are only virtual dresses, right? They're only virtual clothes. They're not physical things, but you've got designers over there who are actually doing like fabric, which is only for digital applications. And the reason that they're doing it is because there's a market for it. One of these dresses, these virtual dresses sold for $10,000 recently. And you might be asking the question, why would someone pay money like that? If you're spending six hours a day online, you want to be able to represent yourself in a certain way. In the same way that when you leave your house in the, in the morning, you, you make an effort, you kind of dress up a little bit, you, you make sure that you're perceived in a certain when you walk into a public situation. If you're doing that in, in a virtual space, why not have the same kind of thinking over there in which you want to be able to be presentable in a certain way? And this is a choice. There's certain kinds of people who get inside over there and maybe it becomes a trend. Right now, it seems more like a fad and there's like a difference between those two things. But it's really up to the, the person to make that choice. And some people will take it, maybe the younger generation. We have, all have smartphones today. No one's telling you that you need to use a smartphone. You can perfectly go back to using a, like a flip phone, just like a simplistic phone. But when you make that decision, you're also giving up the access to the world's information in your pocket. So that's like the, the thing over here. It's, it's the fact that we have the choice to make it. And if people want to make that decision, then as long as there are people who are creating demand, there will be people who, who provide supply. If we take a utilitarian view as well about it, I think it's a huge opportunity to collect data on people's behavior in a lot of environment and control the experiments. But there are things where it's very difficult to just, uh, remove the context and understand why a person is reacting like this. This could be social behavior, but it could be for a disease. It could be for all sorts of things. So with Carrie, we're engaged in a big umbrella project that we call Human Machine Understanding. And, and to be able to build the right interfaces, but also the right experiments and kind of design experiments that get you to understand when someone is in pain or someone is under stress or someone is confused, I think being able to build between a virtual world and a real world and be able to capture that information and disentangle the elements that are in there, I think it's really a very rich set of experimental designs that could we do. And this is, has nothing to do with building buying fashion or NFTs or anything like this. 
Yeah, and we'd like to build on what Mohiz just mentioned right now. Like today, if you look at the whole area of pain management, what have we done over there? We've pretty much outsourced it to the pharma companies. Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, with all this newfangled technology out there, how come we haven't been able to crack this problem? And it turns out that there's a massive level of distrust between the person who is in pain, or the care receiver, and the, the healthcare provider. It's very hard for us, even though we can empathize, to be able to actually gauge the depth of pain and what this person is actually feeling. So today, what we're doing with human machine understanding is we're trying to figure out that aspect. How do we use biosignals? How do we use different kinds of data points that can actually help a caregiver understand the depth, the intensity of the pain, and then based on that, be able to make a much better decision where it gives much more pragmatic kind of treatment to these people. And you might say that this sounds like they're using a lot of data and trying to figure out what the persona of a person is. That's essentially what they're doing with this metaverse technology as well. So it's always context relevant. It's always going to be the case that one, once they use it, they might not want to go back to how things were. And that's a decision that needs to be made both by the person who's getting access to the technology and the people who are behind it who are creating it. There has to be a reasoning behind it. Mm, wow. Covered a lot of ground there. So... My next question, and we're going to move on to a couple of wrap-up questions, but at the moment, we're, we've been talking about new technologies and new ways of doing things and all that kind of stuff, but all, new stuff comes out all of the time. Instead of looking into the future, we're actually going to look into the past a little bit. What over the last year have you seen people waste time on or get a li little bit too stuck on the hype of and it result in little to nothing or be completely scrapped. It'd be quite nice to potentially get an example from all three of our little pillars here. When we started thinking about AI and ethics, we said, no, this is an engineering problem. And we had to like really help them understand that th this is an AI. It's not, it's got a lot of capability, but at the end of the day, it's looking at variables and data. So if you want to really have a serious conversation about resolving ethical constraints and ethical issues, then the way you need to go about it is from an engineering perspective. Like, what are the actual variables of ethics? How are we, like, being able to quantify that so that it can be understood by a computer? And unfortunately, this there are people who work on this and they, they do really good work. But most of the noise that you hear about AI and ethics, it's, it's overly dramatized to the point that we, we're losing real focus on the issue. And the issue is it should be looked at from, a, from an engineering perspective rather than this weird way that it's being talked about. Yeah, to pick up on this, actually, yeah, the, the long conversation with Carrie about this topic, I think clearly we want to make sure that machines don't discriminate, but we don't build machines to discriminate or not discriminate. We give it a problem to solve. And if in the process of the data or the end user that interacts with it, there is discrimination, the machine is not going to fix that. Uh, and this is why we need the oversight I was talking about earlier. We need to put in place things that guarantee that things don't go out of whack. But if we start by saying we should not do AI because of ethical issues, then there are many things I think in the past we would not have done. And I think to be more specific on that, on an area where we, I think we lost a lot of energy is the transparency of algorithms. So there are tons of papers and tons of, I think, interesting academic work in this space. I've done work with, with, with one of our clients, a bank, about analyzing the impact of existing transparency algorithm. And we showed that how unreliable they are and how noisy they are to all sorts of things, from the feature engineering of a data scientist to the quality of the data, 
to how it's read. And, and so this is an area where we should make a lot of progress. There are some great actually things out there to learn from, but it's not an area that we cracked. And it's actually a fundamental problem of machine learning, which is how you make machine learning that generalizes and that learns from things that it has not seen. So the problem is actually a fundamental problem of machine learning, just not just an ethical problem. But I think without going into controversy, this is, I think, a problem where we should probably refocus, especially in, in, in the industries that are most sensitive to data and data kind of breaches and ethical aspects. They, they focus on the value, put in place things that limit the risk and be transparent when things go wrong, rather than trying to come up with fancy ethical considerations that are not necessarily useful. Julian, you've been very quiet. What has been overhyped in the quantum space in the past year? I think there is a lot of hype around quantum technologies. The most common thing is that people think about these machines as if they will solve everything and it's just a super fast computer. But in reality, it's super difficult to, to get an advantage, especially in the near term. And for, for many of the applications, you would need like machines that are very far away still. So I think what some people, some companies have wasted some of their time on is to really try to squeeze value out uh, as soon as possible instead of building sustainably along the road of trying to get a, a, a proper quantum advantage. And I think that, that that corresponds to, you know, how you set up your team, how you set expectations, what kind of problems you, you try to work. And it's much better to have a longer term vision. It's really a marathon uh, and not a race. So that's something that I would really recommend to everyone. I think that's definitely a useful thing for uh, everyone to be thinking about, especially with uh, quantum stuff. So my last question, another maybe little bit pointy one, but we'll see how it goes. All of the stuff that we, we've been talking about at the moment and a big highlight of this year in every regard has been sustainability and understanding the impact of everything and how that works with our planet. Quantum computing right now has not really reached the stage of optimization for any kind of like power consumption. Blockchains in a lot of contexts are not good for the environment at all until they move to a proof of stake way of working and there is an awful lot of e-waste in the traditional moore's law way of us building things that we want faster computers all the time to build faster software on that we just get rid of are, are some of the technologies that we've been talking about today going to enable essentially through the computation of everything that we're doing, and Mo, as you touched on this a little bit earlier, of how we make things more efficient, potentially through compression or le less computational impact through optimization. Are the technologies going to be able to get to that point where they can almost self-optimize to be more sustainable before we run out of time on the amount of time that we're actually developing these technologies through? I can start, if you don't mind. So I think on the sort of AI and sustainability, and then I can talk about sustainability more broadly, but I think uh, there is more and more kind of focus in AI now to understanding the impact of the algorithms, the data that is collected and how to do this in a more efficient way. And I've been working with, uh, with a good friend at Imperial College London about like how to take this as a dimension in addition to accuracy of the algorithm, it's energy consumption and how much you're gaining uh, by running a more powerful algorithm compared to uh, something that it's maybe less powerful but have better energy um, efficiency. And we actually published a open source tool that enabled people to do these trade-offs with, with colleagues from, from France, from the data science team in France. So I think that in the AI space, there is clearly, because 
people believe that this is going to be a general purpose computing paradigm that will be used. People are thinking more and more about, I think now if we talk about sustainability more broadly, I think it's like talking about AI as an umbrella. This is a big topic. There are many levers and there are many things to think about. And there's been a lot about the carbon impact and the fossil fuels, but there is, you know, the ingredients we use, there is a way of interacting, consuming, moving. And I think this is something that if we're able to measure and play back to people how they're impacting the planet, this could also could be a great quill to them to understand their impact, but also industries. I think data could help a lot in doing this. I think we need to break this problem in many smaller problems that we can solve rather than just an umbrella problem that we're going to struggle to solve if, if taken this way. I, I think a lot of the reason why people have got that understanding that crypto and blockchain and Bitcoin especially uses a lot of energy is because it traces back to this article that was published by Nature. And this article, which was published in 2018, I think, or something like that, made a lot of assumptions, a lot of assumptions which were wrong. They thought that the amount of energy that was going to be used for validating each and every transaction is the same as it used to validate a block, which is not at all true. And secondly, they thought that this was during the, the tail end of the ICO craze, where we just saw like a huge spike in adoption. And they thought that kind of adoption rate would continue. And in reality, it didn't happen that way. It went down. There's like ups and downs that happen over there. So that's like the reason why this got circulated. And since no news makes as much uh, impact as sensational news, this kind of entered a lot of people's mind. The truth of the matter is, if you're running a proof of work protocol and you're a validator on it, you are incentivized in, to reduce your energy consumption because otherwise you're, you're spending a lot of your what you gain directly in paying the energy cost. And this is the reason why, especially after the crackdown in China, which I think was good for the overall Bitcoin economy, you had more and more of these mining uh, rigs which were actually, and, and farms, which were set up in places where there's access to, to cheap renewable energy. And the fact of the matter is today, 70% or even up to 75% of the, the energy that's used just for Bitcoin actually comes from renewable energy, right? You might say, why aren't we using this energy for something else? We spend more than the total amount of energy that the Bitcoin network actually consumes just by using the, the electrical devices that we just keep on, but we don't use every day. And so it is, this is, if you're going to be talking about this topic seriously, you need to have a much more holistic vision, of just like in any system, but people are doing more and more of it with energy, renewable energy today. And if you transition from Bitcoin to, uh, to, to third generation blockchains and or, or if it's Cardano, or if it's Solana, these have been designed from the get-go to be as you know carbon neutral as possible. I think Algorand, that's one of the main reasons we partnered with them, is because we looked at how they were operating this stuff and were able to say that, fine, we prefer partnering with these people because they do have a net zero ambition, which they're achieving in, in a very uh, advanced rate. To flip over to Julian, are we going to reach that like correct tipping point where the technology can be optimized so that it doesn't waste a bunch of stuff. And I, I think this is the most interesting question for quantum because it is still in its early years. Is there much thought going into that right now or is it still a little bit up in the air? No, no, absolutely. So I think one perspective is to see how polluting the, the technology itself is, right? Like how many data centers we'll have for AI running NLP models or how how much miners we have to sustain the, the blockchain. 
And I think that's a valid reasoning. And for quantum technologies as well, those machines operate at absolute zero uh, uh, temperature and are quite bulky and take a lot of energy. But it's comparing apples and pears. These machines are so extremely powerful that if they will be big enough, they may be able to do say things that the bigger supercomputer clusters wouldn't be able to do in thousands of years. So then this this energy consumption is becomes irrelevant. I think what what is maybe what I find more interesting than to to look at just the energy consumption of these technologies is to see what you can do with it. I think we are we have a lot of challenges in the race to move to a net zero society. I think we are making some progress to these days with with solar panels and other types of sustainability sustainables and some progress in moving to electrical vehicles although it's really i think at this point one percent of all the cars are electric so it's really just a, a very small step and we'll have many more challenges in the future from from moving the steel industry to uh to a more sustainable one or cement or the way we use air conditioning in our homes or or heating and many other things and I think we will need all the new technologies that we can that we can get. So we need that, that more advanced AI to build new materials. We will need quantum technologies to develop new batteries that will make uh, electric fe- electric vehicles more attractive. We need to to go beyond the solar panels of today and make them more efficient and more applicable in different circumstances. And so there are many of these challenges ahead. And and I think that both new types of AI and quantum machine quantum Computing would definitely be a big, play a big role there. From today's episode, it's easy to see that there are some seismic technological shifts on the horizon as we go into 2022 and beyond. Technologies like the ones we've discussed here today are only going to become increasingly relevant to businesses in all industries. And as tech like quantum computing and innovative AI algorithms become a reality in how we operate our businesses, it's even more important that we keep our sights firmly set on the future. A big thank you to today's guests, Kerry, Moez and Julian for sharing their insights and expertise. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. We wish you all the best for the new year.